A little over a year after the dip in the international supply chain for renewable projects, many are starting to wonder just where the U.S. fits into the world's renewable energy market. Can we really build a clean power supply chain on the home front? Hi, I'm Michaela Altal, West Coast reporter with New Project Media. I'm joined today by Andy Klump, CEO and founder of Clean Energy Associates, a solar and battery storage firm that focuses on supply chain management, quality assurance, and engineering services with offices in Denver, Colorado, as well as Shanghai and Hong Kong. Before founding CEA in 2008, Andy was the Vice President of Business Development for Trina Solar Limited and is a former board member with the Solar Energy Industries Association. Yeah, thanks for being here today. So yeah, for all of our readers, you know, we mostly focus on the U.S. market, but obviously CEA is focused, has a headquarters in Shanghai as well and does a lot of work in China and APAC. So I just wondered if for anyone that's unfamiliar, if you could start off by giving us a quick recap of just the solar and storage market uh, markets in uh, APAC and kind of where it's at now and what we can look out for in 2021. Absolutely. No, happy to uh, to go through that. And I will uh, also tell you, I uh, I, I have uh, a lot of folks who you know do uh, do a lot of business with us in uh, in the U.S. Uh, but you know we also do cover uh, over fifty. Uh, I'm sorry, actually sixty markets globally. So um, our team is very used to uh, to working across many different areas. So um, no problem. Happy to to talk through uh, what we see in uh, in Asia Pacific. So first of all, I, I should definitely start uh, by talking about Asia Pacific with. Uh, the world's largest market, which is clearly China. So uh, China has been uh, a juggernaut, as uh, as we all know. Uh, 2017 was the previous high in China with uh, market numbers as high as 53 gigawatts of installed capacity. And uh, that was a record. Um, you know, I've, I've been living and working in China uh, since 2003 and uh, really involved in the PV sector since 2006. So uh, I was definitely involved when it was just literally dozens of megawatts, and in 2010 was the first year it hit uh, over a gigawatt. So it kind of went through a precipitous spike in uh, the years from from there all the way up to 2017. But effectively, the the market was quite small until 2013 or 14. It became you know multiple gigawatts and then uh, scaled rapidly to the 53 number in uh, in 2017. From there, we actually saw the market decline uh, to 20. Yeah, you know, 18 and 2019 numbers of you know in that kind of high 30s to, to low 40s, and 2020 was uh, was no exception. Kind of in that area, it actually did eclipse uh, 45 because of a very strong second half of the year, and it was it was shocking to folks that it, it reached as high uh, as it did because of uh, COVID. You know, a number of volumes were, were quite small. Now, what was was really amazing is I think the 2021 outlook is extremely strong. And that's due to the fact that uh, the Chinese government has made uh, some market progress in moving the overall uh, Chinese market demand towards a, uh, a supporting uh, supporting overall market uh, that will be carbon neutral by 2060. So with this uh, announcement that happened early this year and China's pledge to be carbon neutral, we're actually expecting a market to be over 65 to over 70 gigawatts this year. So nearly uh, doubling uh, the output of, uh, of what it was last year in the, in the mid 40s. Uh, and so there, there's some, uh, some, you know, some predictions that could be as high as 80 gigawatts. But I think over the next uh, four, four plus years, we'll see a 60 plus gigawatt market. So China demand will be extremely strong. If you look at uh, the historically second largest market in Asia, that's Japan. Uh, Japan's been solid and uh, was in a in the late 80s, as you probably know, uh, there's one of the original uh, high growth markets in, uh, in, in the world. 
taking a, a, a dominant share of uh, the world's largest market. But uh, the the real policy supporting solar really peaked uh, kind of several years after Fukushima. Uh, that happened, uh, you know, about seven or eight years ago. But the market's kind of matured, and it while it um, has still been a, a, a you know close to an eight or nine gigawatt market in the past, it's kind of trailed off to around four and a half to five gigawatts, I think, this year. So still substantial, but certainly pales in comparison to uh, to what China is doing. If I had to walk down the other markets that have been uh, surprise markets, um, the number three market would absolutely be Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam was uh, effectively a, a, a just a small non-existent market in 2018, but jumped to roughly four and a half gigawatts in 2019. Uh, there was a COD uh, deadline of June 30th that year, and then uh, they later extended some of the deadlines to December of uh, 2019. But then 2020, we saw a massive surge uh, with uh, about nine gigawatts in, for the year in total, uh, with the last-minute surge in December of six gigawatts. So completely surprised folks. And you know, it's just it was a combination of both uh, you know some utility scale, but a lot of rooftops. The rooftop uh, market was buoyed by like an 8.8 cent per kilowatt hour tariff. So uh, the solar surge was uh, was massive. So I think if we look at 2021, I, th- I think the market's not going to be that as large, but certainly uh, could be a four to six gigawatt market. Uh, but once again, it could be stable at that level in the mid single digit gigawatts for the next uh, handful of years, just because you know there's uh, roughly an 80 to 100 gigawatt market in total. But um, energy needs within Vietnam are growing at 10 plus percent a year. And the company or the country is just trying to transition from fossil fuels to, uh, to other more, uh, you know, better sources of, of energy and, and uh, lower cost uh, with more reliability. So I'm going to, by the way, I'm just going to talk to all these markets in sequence on solar, and then I'll go back and make some commentary on storage, if that's okay. Yeah, that uh, But great. outside of Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, I'd say, is the other, uh, other market that has, has a lot of promise, uh, but clearly not as large, but I think roughly a, a gigawatt or so a year. Um, there's been some, some strong uh, you know, tenders have been put out. I think the uh, LLS4 tender was just um, open last year, and so the results are going to be announced in the next couple of months. Uh, but the LLS5 tender will go out in uh, the second quarter of this year. So we're expecting to see uh, yeah, pretty healthy number from uh, those tenders in terms of larger ground mount projects, but still probably 50 to 100 megawatts of solar installation. So I think in aggregate, we'll see yeah, roughly a gigawatt or so in that market. And then from there, I think there's a pretty substantial drop off. Uh, you'll see, I think, two to 300 megawatts from markets like the Philippines or Thailand. Uh, but it's kind of a mix of, uh, of different, uh, different folks. I think that the markets that'll drop a little bit further, I mean, Indonesia's in there. There actually have been some decent sized deals announced in Indonesia. I think four deals were, were recently announced of total about 400 megawatts. Uh, and there's also a handful of private PPAs that are in place uh, at various manufacturing and industrial sites. But uh, Indonesia is a you know island of many nations, so they'll or a, 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 or I should say a nation of many islands. So you'll you'll see a lot of uh, of solar deployment at various different uh, islands and, and tropical locations. But uh, in aggregate, the, the market still is you know one to two hundred megawatts, uh, maybe three hundred megawatts at the, at the high end. But then, uh, you know, once again, I think you'll, as I said, you know, Philippines, Thailand, each will have some, um, you know, some, you know, some deployments, but not, um, not nearly as the, the level as anywhere else. And I'd say to round things out, you know, there's actually been about 186 megawatts of projects announced in Cambodia. So, but there's only like two or three project developers that really 
receive the benefit there. And I think only a third of those are completed. So uh, Myanmar, is, as you know, probably had a, a pretty big announcement of about, uh, you know, close to a gigawatt. Uh, and I think there are 30 bids that are awarded. I think 29 of those were Chinese EPCs or, or owners. But uh, with the recent change of government, uh, then all those uh, projects are more or less put on hold. So I think that that more or less kind of covers uh, Asia Pacific. Then once again, I'll just, you know, just conclude and say, you know, Australia is the other market uh, that in the past has been, um, yeah, had some some po- strong policy support, particularly in residential. And there's also been some activity in the utility scale, uh, but there's been some pullback in that market. So it's uh, it's still, you know, moving ahead, but still uh, less than a half a gigawatt. So much smaller than some of the other big multi-gigawatt type of markets. So on the on the storage side, I'd say just largely, uh, you know, storage is just still largely uh, not really uh, promoted in, in any meaningful way in or any markets. I would say in China, we've seen some positive news. This is the first time there's been a few provinces who actually made some announcements about, uh, about storage uh, coming to market. And we're expecting to see a handful of, uh, of, of decent storage tenders that are going to yield uh, some growth in the market. But the... Um, the overall plan for uh, for storage is it still hasn't been uh, finalized, but you know among the, the the four to five provinces that have storage, I think you're going to see some more serious deployments. But there've been a number of pilots that have been installed in, in the recent year or two. But I think this is the first year we're actually starting to see some storage at scale. And then outside of that, I'd say it really varies. I mean, there's really no special storage incentive in place in these different markets I talked through. Um, I think in some places like the Philippines or Indonesia, there's some microgrids that are kind of below the, the radar screen, uh, but there's really not a whole lot of storage that's uh, that's promoted outside of some uh, microgrid cases. So you know, just in general, uh, storage is not something you're going to see really kind of flow along Asia. Uh, but um, you know, there's obviously some exceptions. You know, there's some uh, you know, residential uh, storage demand in, in places like Japan. And, um, and and a few other regions, but not um, not much uh, meaningful volume uh, outside of just some off-grid projects and microgrid projects. So that would kind of be my uh, my overall wrap on uh, on Asia Pacific solar and storage. Uh, are there any questions you have? Yeah, that was that was great. I think you did an awesome job of showing how diverse that market is. So you know, you did mention that there's not a whole lot of storage in that market. And, you know, obviously the U.S. also gets compared a lot to the European market, you know, just anywhere from five to 10 years ahead of us. So how does the U.S. really measure up to the APAC market? Is it um, or maybe just particular if you want to focus in on one market in particular, because, as you mentioned, they're all very different. So is there anything that, you know, maybe that market does well that the U.S. could learn from or vice versa? Well, look, I mean, so the U.S. is is definitely one of the the strongest markets uh, globally. And so I don't expect there to be any meaningful, uh, you know, comparison, uh, just from the standpoint of the, the amount of solar adoption, it depends on which, uh, sources you look at whether the U S finished at 16 and a half gigawatts last year or 19 gigawatts, uh, still much, much larger than, uh, than a lot of the other non-China markets in Asia Pacific. Uh, but look, I mean, the, the U S is, is still going to pale in comparison to, to China. And I think that will always, uh, be the case, but it still will, will remain a second uh, market globally. Uh, I think the you know the U.S. certainly is uh, obviously it runs at a very different paradigm. There's clearly uh, a lot of uh, market forces uh, that are, are completely different in a lot of Asian economies. But the fact that you have uh, 5,000 utilities in the U.S., that you don't have uh, a central command and control kind of government structure that uh, is going to push 
uh, you know, solar at all costs, it's, it's a very different framework. But uh, I think, look, overall, you're, we're going to see a, uh, a U.S. market that's very robust. And I think the market mechanisms are much more stable in a, on a long-term basis in the U.S. Uh, but I think one of the things that makes the U.S. Uh, very unique is that it still has a, a, a primary mechanism of the investment tax credit. So uh, the ITC is still a permanent fixture in, in the U.S. and a, a lot of other countries don't have that approach. Uh, and so I think it's, it's a more stable financing structure that will lead to long-term success. But uh, the, the challenge, once again, is uh, that I think a lot of uh, markets that have high incentives, once again, just like, like, Japan, or, uh, like Vietnam, for example, is a market just jumps up from nothing to four to five gigawatts and nine gigawatts in just one to two years. But that's just not sustainable for the country in terms of the size of the, uh, of the energy needs it, it has. So uh, we've seen a lot of markets that have gone through uh, boom-bust cycles uh, in Europe, uh, you know, Spain, uh, Vietnam, and elsewhere. But uh, there's always kind of a, a, a challenge in terms of how to promote in a stable long-term uh, capacity. So it's best to let, uh, let the market sort it out itself. So I'd still say that the U.S. has a lot um, to be a, ahead of, uh, of a number of other countries. But, you know, once again, behind China, it just doesn't have the, the same, same weight uh, that, uh, that China does. So there's there's a combination. It's, I'd say just more or less differing uh, approaches and styles. So not necessarily something to uh, to study or or learn from. Yeah, definitely. So I did want to talk a little bit about you know supply chain because that's something that you and I have spoken about in the past a couple times. It's something that mm-hmm. you know CEA obviously is very involved in. So you know uh, last time we spoke, you told me that you know after taking the tumble in like early 2020, the international renewable supply chain really bounced back pretty well and was kind of pretty strong from there on out for the rest of the year. Um, so, you know, with that kind of in mind, where do you really expect to see growth from the supply chain in 2021? So we absolutely see uh, as a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of growth in terms of new supply that's coming, uh, that's coming online. Uh, but it's, it's really, I'd say, a combination of a few different factors. So while the direct solar uh, supply chain from a core crystalline technology standpoint hasn't been inhibited by uh, by COVID and really since the full recovery in, uh, say, as early as uh, March or April of last year, production has not been halted by uh, you know, any COVID factors just because China has been largely insulated from, um, from a lot of the, you know, the, 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 the overall breakout of the, of the pandemic uh, post, um, you know, post April and May. I myself have been in China since, uh, since September of last year. I did spend about eight months outside of China last year, but since returning to China, uh, there's there's virtually uh, you know virtually zero cases. There have been a handful. When I say handful, it's literally like a dozen here, a dozen there. Uh, but all those cases are tracked, and uh, and and there's a immediate lockdown put on the city where the those cases are at risk. And so it's really been business as normal. So supply chains not been impacted uh, directly in terms of core manufacturing, but there have been a few shortages that have caused some cost increases. So one example is this uh, is a glass. So glass uh, actually did have a, a prolonged shortage for about uh, four to six months towards the end of last year and the start of this year. A lot of that was driven by the fact that there was such an upsurge in, uh, in overall uh, module demand uh, within China. There's also been a shift to bifacial. So obviously using two sides of the, of the module of being glass as opposed to just using a, back, a standard back sheet, uh, that, that had an impact. And there was also some limitation in terms of the amount of supply that was available. Uh, so all those factors together caused class prices to increase quite substantially. 
but that's uh, been started to rein in as uh, some new capacity in glass has been released. And then also some of the demand uh, for Chinese modules hasn't been quite as, uh, as strong as it was in Q4. It is still robust right now, mind you. And so the first half of this year is actually predicted to be quite strong in China. But glass is not as uh, much as pinched as it was uh, a, a few months ago. The other key factor that's been an impact in terms of cost increase has been just the cost of uh, logistics. So the cost of containers have, have gone uh, up dramatically. And there's some cases we've seen pricing from uh, from China to Europe that's gone up by uh, four to five X. I think there's, there's others who've seen pricing that's increased by three times. But effectively, there's a number of factors due to COVID. One, there's just far less bilateral trade. Uh, and I think the other thing is that a lot of containers are, are backed up at the ports. So that has caused some severe challenges, not just in terms of pricing, but also availability. So securing uh, containers themselves has been a big challenge. Uh, we've seen a number of our, our clients and then uh, suppliers who face the, the same sets of issues. But you know, once again, the supply chain itself has been fairly robust and uh, still continues to grow and expand. Uh, we've also seen uh, some additional activity about uh, polysilicon being in shortage. So there has been an increase in, in polysilicon. Uh, what's going to do the, the large rush uh, towards the end of last year in China, and then also the ongoing demand uh, push, as we talked about, with their 60, 70, or 80 gigawatts in China. Uh, that's also leading to some uh, potential further increases in polysilicon as the, as the year goes on. So once again, I, I still see there uh, being supply that will uh, will expand uh, to meet the market needs, but but there is has been an, an impact uh, impact on pricing, and I think that's uh, been a surprise to some buyers of uh, buyers of solar modules uh, on a global basis. Yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like you often hear about you know people missing critical minerals or something like that, but it's it's really interesting to hear that people are you know in need of something as simple as glass or building materials. Correct. And I, I, I should also comment that there's other commodities uh, that have gone uh, increased in price. Uh, so everyone's familiar with the uh, spike in silver and copper and other commodities. But, you know, silver does have a, an impact. Uh, silver paste is obviously heavily used for crystalline cells. And uh, so there is uh, an increase in, uh, in pricing that, that has, does have an impact. But yes, yeah, so I mean, you know, glass, once again, is not something thought of as a uh, as a limiting factor, but you know, keep in mind that there's many different applications of, of glass and, and demand in glass is not just in solar, it's also in buildings and just general construction, automotive, et cetera. Uh, we've seen a massive building boom within China. Uh, so once again, with the uh, kind of post COVID recovery, there's also been a lot of stimulus and from a variety of governments around the world, not just in China, but that de- demand build uh, has been felt. I mean, we've seen cases, once again, not con- directly correlated with solar, but the cost of lumber, the forward forward market for lumber has gone up uh, dramatically at, at four to five X as well. So, you know, a lot of uh, housing uh, boom that's been caused as folks wanted to leave the, the kind of urban center and, and build outside uh, in the suburbs. So uh, there, there are a lot of uh, interesting dynamics that are caused by COVID-19, uh, not just in solar that are, uh, are being impacted. But, you know, I did want to talk about kind of a buzzworthy topic from the last year, which has been, you know, the growth of the U.S. domestic supply chain, um, which, you know, is something that President Joe Biden has said that he hopes to boost within his administration. So uh, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about where do you see the domestic supply chain going in the U.S. and will there be any impact from the new administration as compared to the old one? Uh, absolutely. Look, I, I think that it's 
it's uh, it's fantastic to see uh, growth of renewables in a lot of different areas, and it's only natural there's going to be different manufacturing hubs. And so the the there has been uh, there have been a few uh, facilities that have gone up in the U.S. Uh, our teams have been in those uh, in those facilities, and I will say you know we have teams uh, located in 13 countries, and so we're continuously doing inspections, not just on solar modules, but also inverters, racking. Uh, storage, uh, yeah, battery systems. We're, we're really looking at uh, full enclosures and a, a whole host of other areas uh, really around the world, not just uh, in, uh, in Asia, but also in the U.S. So we do have a domestic U.S. team that does look at uh, manufacturing facilities. And so uh, we've been at the number of the, the facilities that are in the U.S. around solar modules and cells, and we've seen uh, the good and the bad in those facilities. So once again, I think it's, uh, it's certainly great to see uh, those facilities operating and, uh, and improving. But one of the challenges is not just the module manufacturing facility itself. It's once again, it's all the core components, whether that's glass, it's aluminum frames, you know, it's, it's all the, the cell supply. You know, there are just many other factors that go into uh, creating an over integrated, overall integrated supply chain. It's just not easy to, to manufacture these products overnight. So building out a supply chain is a, a multi-billion dollar investment uh, if you want to do this at scale. And so it is a challenge to go through and uh, deploy the amount of capital to really build out, you know, tens of gigawatts, which will be needed by the U.S. market. So this will take uh, you know, a decade or more to build out some of these uh, broader facilities if you're really talking about, you know, 10 to 20 gigawatts plus. But, you know, the, the challenge, once again, is like, where are, the, where are the best use of resources? So, yes, that can create hundreds of manufacturing jobs. And we've seen hundreds of manufacturing jobs be created for uh, large amounts of, uh, of investment, but there's also a large amount of investment that's just being put into infrastructure and to, uh, you know, building out, you know, uh, hundreds of, uh, yeah, hundreds of, of different solar projects really throughout the U S. And once again, that, that labor generates, uh, you know, job growth that's much greater, uh, and it's in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. And I think if you look at the, the news from SIA with, you know, over 250,000 uh, U.S. workers involved in uh, in solar energy. It's a good majority of those are are technical, well-paying, you know, stable jobs. And so, CEA uh, as a U.S. LLC, we actually do have a 40-person team in North America that's executing many of these many of these uh, these same jobs. We're doing technical advisory work at the system level, whether it's on a rooftop of a big box retailer or in the the large uh, field of a of a utility scale manufacturing or a utility scale plant. I mean, these are all uh, highly technical jobs that require, uh, you know, strong, strong labor uh, that, uh, you know, they're either technicians or engineers who can go off and, you know, perform an energy analysis or uh, energy estimates to, to make sure that these, uh, these sites are, are engineered properly and able to, uh, to execute according to the plan. And so there's also a lot of, a brains around the system that's not necessarily in the manufacturing, uh, but has to do with you know system design and, and architecture. So, uh, and engineering related to storage uh, is increasingly becoming common as you'll see more and more solar and storage facilities together. You know, our, the amount of business we've had on storage is more than tripled from last year to this year. So, we feel very very excited about the the future growth and the supply chain, but we think the holistic view is uh, is promoting uh, deployment of solar and storage throughout the U.S. And I think the Biden administration is going to support uh, general policies that promote renewable energy uh, development. So we are very excited about the future and uh, happy to support the, the growth of our team as well as uh, the overall needs of the market. Yeah, that's great. 
Um, and so should that, you know, domestic supply chain grow, where do you really see the role of quality assurance, which is something that CEA is really known for? That's kind of bread and butter for what, you, what you do. Absolutely. So once again, uh, yeah, quality control and quality assurance is the work we've been doing since 2008. And we've uh, focused a lot of our efforts in, uh, in Asian-based manufacturing facilities. Uh, but since we've had teams on the ground in the U.S. since 2013, we've been in a variety of solar facilities uh, in the U.S. And I will say we have aggregated uh, our 75 gigawatts worth of project data and information uh, across all the different countries and, and uh, operating environments our teams have been in. So we've actually been able to benchmark and compare different manufacturing facilities. And I'd say one thing that is not geographic uh, dependent, it's really more about the, the age and the experience of the operators in those facilities is that once again, defects happen anywhere in the world. So we've seen massive problems on some of the, the new facilities that are in the U.S., uh, being built out and run by international, uh, you know, international companies. So these are, uh, in some cases, uh, U.S. companies. Sometimes it's international companies that are operating in the U.S. But just building up any supply chain and taking an unskilled uh, labor force that's not uh, familiar with the manufacturing process, it takes time to learn the craft. And so there is a 6, 12, sometimes 18-month ramp-up period. So Quality assurance is absolutely a very relevant uh, topic and service offering. We have experts uh, led by a PhD in the U.S. Who's, who are in the, the manufacturing facilities looking at uh, modules on a daily basis, performing inline uh, you know, quality assurance, inline production monitoring, as well as pre-shipment inspection. Uh, we have teams that are also uh, performing work as the product gets uh, loaded onto containers and shipped throughout the country. So the role of quality assurance is still very valid, whether it's some uh, place that's in the U.S., Canada, or Europe, or, or elsewhere in Asia. So I think the, the, the fact of the matter is operators in many different facilities, uh, they don't often have a wealth of experience across you know, dozens of different manufacturing facilities. And so the important thing that we do is really viewing the manufacturing as it's actually happening and, and trying to, to show best-in-class approaches to how to improve quality. And so I think the, the leading manufacturers that are very open to having uh, third-party independent firms like Clean Energy Associates come in and actually complete the quality assurance work is only to their benefit. And at the end of the day, we're finding defects and preventing product that is not qualified from going into the factory and then later on producing warranty claims. And let's keep in mind that you know the, the, the news and the data is much more prevalent. Uh, we've seen a number of Fires that have happened uh, on top of, um, of places like Walmart, you know, the Walmart fires are documented and known in the, in the press. And uh, there are others who've had uh, had problems uh, on, on various rooftops. So it's not just uh, uh, not not any one company. But once again, there are plenty of folks uh, in the field uh, who've experienced problems. Utility scale plants have had uh, bad problems with inverters and, you know, arcing or hotspots do happen. And once again, these, these quality uh, defects are, are things that absolutely need to be watched and monitored because uh, this is a very hazardous product. And keep in mind, um, the, I'd say some of the risks are even exacerbated when you see more and more storage utilization. So storage is absolutely another key growth trend that we're watching very closely. And so the role of quality assurance is not just on the solar module manufacturing side, it's also on, on the uh, overall uh, storage system as well. So that's where our teams are capable of both uh, solar module manufacturing as well as upstream module components, as well as energy storage. So all those, uh, all those topics are very, uh, very real and things that we're very knowledgeable on. Yeah, absolutely. 
since you you mentioned you're watching the energy storage market very closely, um, what are you kind of expecting from that? You know, seeing especially as standalone storage still doesn't really have its own tax credit. Uh, so, so there's actually going to be a massive uptick uh, in terms of energy storage. So uh, we see that uh, industry going through uh, exponential growth. Uh, I think if you compare just one or two years ago, I think the default for all the new systems that are uh, being scoped and engineered today is uh, is you'll see uh, energy you know, energy storage scoped in with solar energy storage also paired with wind. Anything we've seen, you know, one of the statistics I heard most recently from an insurance company is in the last six months. There are over 20 million U.S. households that have been without power at some point in time. The Texas snowstorm in uh, February was an example. It's again a number of uh, folks that were there without power for days and without water for you know a week or two after the uh, the incident. And so once again, the, the the whole sense of like extreme weather events is a very common premise, and that's something that we're seeing more and more. And so once again, hailstorms just being as an example is causing far more uh, you know, damage to solar plants than what was previously expected. So all of these um, these systems are really quite uh, quite a shock and something that, um, that many have not uh, planned for. But once again, extreme weather events just highlight the need for energy storage. Uh, so uh, I think the uptick in terms of leading residential players, whether it's Tesla, Sunrun, uh, Sonova, the like, are all, you know, they're all embracing a combination of, um, of solar plus storage at the residential level, but you're increasingly seeing that at the utility scale level. The reality is just the grid is, uh, is weak in certain areas, and, uh, and certainly ERCOT kind of proved uh, some of the challenges in, uh, within Texas, but we're going to see more and more storage. I did want to ask, I'm not sure if the answer, there might, answer might be no to this, but um, you know, when you're talking about extreme weather and quality assurance, does, does that extreme weather ever like play into that narrative? Do you know, does that make quality assurance like even more necessary because your, you know, products might be in conditions that they, you know, you weren't prepared for? Absolutely. I mean, there, there is a, uh, you know, there's a clear correlation between how a product is built and how it performs in the field. And so the, the reality is that extreme weather uh, can have a, a dramatic impact on uh, on how you know how a module performs, but once again, there are cases where there's once again, it's like golf ball styles are greater than golf ball size hail that uh, one typically doesn't test. So a lot of the the hail tests that are performed are used on a a, a much smaller uh, you know more of a, a large marble size uh, piece of hail uh, just as a simulation. But when all of a sudden you're the, uh, just seeing massive uh, golf ball or even softball styles uh, hail coming out in certain places in Texas, as an example, it just the the incidence of these extreme weather events are, are just happening at much greater pace than that's ever happened before. So this is a dramatic uh, impact. And so once again, the role of quality assurance is not just about having an inspector in the facility and looking at the facility. It's all holistically looking at the quality assurance program, uh, which is where we often begin is, is really inspection of what the bill of materials are uh, and, and really uh, analyzing the contract and making sure that the contract it's foolproof. Uh, the bill of materials are uh, are already uh, dictated, determined well in advance. And so the inspector walks into the facility knowing what to look at. They complete a factory audit in advance. Uh, they're sure that the equipment is fine-tuned and calibrated properly. And they're, you know, we perform over a thousand points, uh, you know, inspection checklist as you go through and do these very thorough, comprehensive factory audits and then ongoing inspections on a daily basis. So Absolutely. Uh, a, a very thorough quality assurance program should uh, be able to cover 
some of the uh, the potential product uh, gaps that are, uh, are are affected by extreme weather. But you know, once again, part of it is also uh, you know, some of this is out of the con- out of control of, uh, of of any one individual. So that's where you know, once again, where those those modules are mounted and how they're mounted also makes a difference. That's where workmanship can lead to problems if uh, an extreme weather event is not. Uh, not planned for or predicted, then, uh, you know, whether it's hail or whether it's a hurricane type uh, wind forces, they certainly can have wreak havoc at, uh, at some uh, ground mounted or rooftop mounted uh, solar installations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so we'll end on a bit of a high note here. So, you know, we're talking all about predictions and what's going forward. So what's really the latest from Clean Energy Associates? Um, what are you guys really hoping to achieve in the rest of 2021? And is there anything we can look out for? Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. Our team is uh, is certainly expanding on a number of fronts. I would say in addition to uh, growing our team by more than uh, more than 25%, uh, we are also anticipating having new service offerings. I'd say more recently, really as, as early as 20, you know, 2019 and in 2020, we're doing a lot of research around green hydrogen, but uh, we've had a lot more inquiries uh, and actually uh, you're know, happy to say we have uh, you know, paid engagements to help uh, execute on green hydrogen projects ranging from uh, folks who are either investing in uh, green hydrogen pilot facilities uh, here in the U.S. or overseas. Uh, we have uh, clients in India and Europe also asking for our services. Uh, I myself was just an electrolyzer uh, supplier visit just uh, just a few uh, a couple of months ago. And so our teams are in touch with electrolyzer manufacturers and, and trying to find ways to optimize the supply chain. One of the challenges we've seen in the supply chain, as uh, as you may be aware, is that capex is just one part of the equation. A lot of it is just the cost of the electricity. So, as uh, as solar has been deployed at much larger scale and much lower cost, it's also lo- lowered the the cost of the input uh, materials into the the green hydrogen equation. So that's why green hydrogen is uh, is a is a is a source of uh, of energy that a lot of folks are looking into. But once again, the capex of electrolyzers is also uh, projected to to drop. By as much as fifty percent over the next five years, so we see uh, we've already seen some suppliers make a meaningful impact uh, just within the last year or so. Pricing has dropped by more than twenty percent, and we're expecting further drops that really lead to lower capex. Uh, but obviously, when one looks at at what the uh, you know the end output is, the the cost of the system is somewhat dependent on how highly utilized that is. So it's once again, it's not just an alternative uh, produce hydrogen as a, as a byproduct every now and then, like a natural gas peaker, it needs to be continuously used. And so the greater utilization really leads to lower costs and uh, you know, a greater uh, greater use of the, uh, the CapEx that goes into those systems. So we're walking through various uh, clients uh, who are developers and looking at uh, green hydrogen applications and helping to support that development. Uh, and so our teams are growing uh, in that area as well as uh, energy storage and increasingly other uh, other demands as our clients need. So I would say uh, expect ongoing growth in, uh, in services expansion. And as always, feel free to visit the, the Clean Energy Associates website at CEA3.com to see how else uh, we can further support your, your projects. Yeah, definitely. We're also keeping an eye on green hydrogen here. Been doing a lot of coverage of that over the last year. I, I would just uh, I would just highlight once again the I think the importance of uh, of having an independent third party to complete a lot of the the work uh, that we do it's extremely important uh, and there are other uh, others who are involved in this industry. I will definitely say we've we've seen a lot of folks have used test labs. We also have partnerships with uh, independent test labs both in China, the US and other markets. 
but we have also seen a number of uh, test labs who have uh, some some teams that are doing independent uh, quality work or they claim to be independent. Uh, but the reality is, uh, you know, once again, being a, a U.S.-owned entity that is uh, completely independent of suppliers is extremely important. All of our work is uh, is entirely focused on downstream IPPs, developers, uh, EPCs, and financial institutions that are the end owners of solar and storage assets. So that's where our uh, alliance is really on the downstream owners who who care about a consistent uh, and reliable and optimized performance. And that's where I think CA is very well positioned versus uh, others who rely on being paid by suppliers to do various reports. Uh, bankability reports are not our business, and we do not get engaged with uh, being paid by suppliers uh, as we feel the, that would compromise our integrity and uh, an approach to the market. So uh, we're very happy to uh, to work with our, many of our clients on a repeat basis. And uh, that's one thing I'll say is we've had uh, uh, ongoing checks of our net promoter score from our clients. And I'm very happy to announce that we have extremely high rates, uh, well above 80 on uh, NPS uh, you know, sample sizes of greater than 50%. So uh, our teams have been very pleased to see such a strong uh, response to our clients who are often working with us on a repeat basis. So very happy to entertain any of uh, any of folks in the industry involved in uh, solar and storage deployment that are looking for folks to help on the ground at the site, uh, but also uh, on the upstream side where the products are manufactured. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, yeah, once again, thank you so much for, you know, taking the time to chat with us. It was all really great. I learned a lot, certainly. So, <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Excellent. Well, fantastic. I look forward to ongoing dialogue and uh, feel free to reach out at any time. Yeah, uh, will do. And I'll let you, I guess, probably go to bed because I think it's like 10 p.m. there for you. So. <laughs> uh, yes, that's all right. That's all right. I do a lot of calls yeah. in the U.S., so very happy to talk anytime. So yeah. thanks so much, Michaela. Yeah.